Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, Hebrews chapter number 1, our exposition through the book of Hebrews. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we have uh, primarily just been dealing with introductory thoughts uh, that are certainly packed with much doctrine. Uh, They are packed with many things that we need to get established and many things that we need to have settled uh, in our mind this morning. Uh, Over the next few weeks, this beginning in verse 5 down through verse 14, introduces a section that I've simply entitled The Dignity of Christ. The Dignity of Christ. And there will be five different sections to this particular uh, portion of Scripture. The Dignity of Christ. And we'll be looking at verses 5 through 14. Uh, Today, I just want to read verses 5 through 7. uh, But we will primarily only be dealing with verse 5 this morning. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Uh, Notice the first two questions, or the two questions found in verse 5. I will tell you over many years of probably lazy study on my part, uh, back in the end of July, the first part of August, I noticed for the first time that verse 5 was two questions. And it was spiritually life-changing for me because I had read Hebrews, I had seen these things, but I had never paid close enough attention to the fact that there were two questions being given here. And these questions are very key to this concept, this principle of the dignity of Christ. Because when we see these questions, these are definitive declarations about things that are only reserved for Jesus Christ himself. These two questions direct us to the state or the quality of Jesus Christ. Those two questions actually illustrate Christ's dignity. Uh, Dignity demonstrates worthiness. Something that is dignified means it merits my reverence, or it merits my granting of worthiness. Now, let's establish something. Christ is worthy whether we acknowledge Him worthy or not. He's not worthy because you say He is. He's worthy because He is God. He is worthy because He is the Son of God. This morning, the first aspect of this dignity of Christ that we're going to deal with is His Sonship. When we see the word Son of God or Son of Man in Scripture, these are specific qualities that are reserved for Christ. Now, His worthiness in these verses, in verses 5 through 14, are demonstrated in really uh, five specific ways. Uh, We'll see His Sonship in verse 5. We'll see His humiliation in verse number 6 and his exaltation in the second half of verse 6 and into verse 7, his righteousness 
in verse number 8 through 9, and then his immutability, which is found in verses 10 through 14. So these are the five elements or the five characteristics that declare the dignity of Christ. So today we deal with sonship. Again, notice what verse 5 asks. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. You'll notice that this is a question that is so doctrinally rich because he's indicating not in a way of expecting an answer. Oftentimes we ask a question and we think we have an answer. But the answer here is already in the negative. There is no angel that has been declared the son or the son of God. It has been reserved only for the sonship that is found in Jesus Christ. But the question goes on. Not only which of the angels has he said this to, but he also, this day have I begotten thee. We'll deal with that phrase of begotten thee. Again, there's a separation that's taking place here. He's separating between that which belongs to Christ alone and that which cannot belong to anyone or anything else. But then this Last part of the question, unto which of the angels is the proper context? Unto which of the angels has God ever said, I will be a father to that angel, and that angel will be my son? The sonship of Christ is imperative. It's imperative that you settle this and understand this principle. Because the Son of God and the Son of Man is not just titles that are thrown around Scripture that we just say, well, yeah, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. There is so much to understand the sonship with regard to Christ's worthiness that's been declared. If He was not declared to be the Son of God, uh, then our hope is, as the Apostle Paul said about the Gospel, if it, if it was not true, if the resurrection was not true, we would be people most miserable, most hopeless. His sonship matters, and his sonship is not something that we can just look at and say, well, you know, I, I, again, like we talked about in Bible study this morning, I'm just not really into that doctrine stuff, just give me Jesus. Doctrinally, to understand Jesus, you have to understand his sonship. And I will not be able to, in the space, I couldn't exhaust this in the space of a number of weeks, his sonship. So I'm going to do the best we can with the scripture of showing what the writer of Hebrews was indicating here. He is, by his words, by his assertion here, he is indicating that Christ possesses something above everyone else. And that first possession that Christ has, he, he has an inheritance. That inheritance is he has a more excellent name than any of the angels. If I was to give you a list of every angel that was created, and I was to list them for you and put them on a board, there would be no angel's name on that board that would even come close to the name of Jesus. Now remember, as we've hopefully learned, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Now, you have to say that, because there are those who are doctrinally weak who say, what was Jesus' full name? And they say, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But he possesses an inheritance that is more excellent than the name that the angels possess. 
This is demonstrated by a quotation that's found in the second psalm. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I'm going to make reference to that in just a moment. Which the second psalm not only gives Jesus the title, the name Jesus, the title of son, but Psalm 2 also describes the son as the begotten one. Okay, so I want you to keep that that in mind as we turn to Psalm 2. Again, this principle of sonship uh, is so imperative. Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now watch. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possessions. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Again, watch. Kiss the sun, lest ye be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. For all those that say the Old Testament says nothing about Christ, there's one proof text for you right there that declares Christ clearly. The gospel is all over the Psalms. Christ is all over the Psalms. The declaration that He is a Son is not something for your consideration. He is the Son. I'm not asking you today, consider His Sonship. I'm declaring to you His Sonship. Whether you acknowledge His Sonship or not, God the Father has already said, He is my Son. And I have begotten him. This sonship is very important. But the writer is also not just making reference to the title and the name in this inheritance. But the writer of Hebrews is also speaking about the prediction of the resurrection. Now, there was a prediction of the resurrection of Christ before it ever took place. Of course, the writers of Hebrews is looking back in a sense But go to Acts 13. I want you to notice the association of the prediction of the resurrection of Christ and how that ties into his sonship. We're going to look at a couple passages here that will hopefully paint a picture here. Acts 13, 33. And see if there are familiar words here. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, this is part of Paul's sermon at Antioch. And one of the main points, the main emphasis of Paul's sermon at Antioch concerned the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is also another characteristic which demonstrates and declares Christ's sonship. This prediction 
Notice Paul even makes reference to that second psalm. You know, sometimes your references to cross-reference scriptures are not that clear. This is about the clearest reference in all the Bible of where Paul says, you know what, I'm going to give you the actual location of what I'm quoting. It's fascinating. Because you don't see that. A lot of times you're like, I've heard that before, but I don't know where I've seen it. He says, go back and look at the second psalm and you'll see exactly what this prediction was. So we see the connection between how this declaration and the sonship of Christ. So we see that he, Christ possesses this inheritance, which gives him a more excellent name than the angels. He demonstrates that not only is he given this name of son, but he's described as being the begotten son of God. The writer of Hebrews and the writer of Acts shows us there's a prediction of the resurrection of Christ. But then here's, where, here's the passage next that really pulls all this together, and that's in Romans chapter 1. And we're going to read the first five verses here. Because this, this is one of those passages that just opens up, if it's not already open to you already, this just opens it up uh, even in a wider fashion. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. You're going to hear me make reference over the next couple of weeks about the seed of David, so just put that away in your memory bank. And declared to be... Notice, and declared to be the Son of God, don't miss this, with power. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now we're starting to see that his resurrection has something to do with the power of God that's being declared upon him. Don't preach a gospel without remembering the resurrection. Because if that, if that Savior, if that Messiah, if that Redeemer stayed in the grave, you're preaching a false doctrine. The resurrection is just as much a part of the gospel because it was that which declared him to be the Son with power. Notice it says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Does this sound familiar? For his name. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are just a few ways in which God, Jesus Christ, has been declared to be the Son of God. He's declared by his name, by his doctrine, by his miracles, by the perfection of his character. Throughout Scripture, we, receive, we see repeated testimonies where God the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But He's also declared as being the promised seed of the woman and also will be the judge of the world. We make a generalized statement when we just simply say, God in general will judge the world. Yes, Jesus Christ is God, but specifically the judge of the world is Jesus Christ himself. That's why God the Father even said, hear ye him. 
There is this dignity that the father is putting on the son saying, this is him. This is he. This is the one. To miss Jesus Christ today is to miss it all. If you leave here today and you miss Jesus Christ, you've missed it all. Because God the Father declares the dignity of Christ and that first part of it is His Sonship. Acts 17.31 makes reference to this being the promised seed, the Son of God, the judge of the world. It's an amazing thing when you start pulling Scripture together and you start comparing Scripture with Scripture, you start seeing just how well the Bible all fits together. Usually the people that argue with you about the Bible and its supposed contradictions are people who have, number one, they've never seen the Savior, and number two, they don't want to see it. They just don't want to see it. I've, I've encountered many people over my life who just don't want to see truth. Even if that truth could, could, could appear in a miracle, they would say, I'm still, I just, I refuse to believe but Acts 17.31, again, it's hard to do this when you're just picking up. Paul is addressing the men of Athens. Very philosophical people. It talks about God winking at times of ignorance in verse 30. This is Paul and at Mars Hill. They have an inscription that says what to the unknown God. They don't even know who they're worshiping. They're just, they're just simply... They're worshiping something, and, and he says, I perceive that you are too superstitious. And it says there in verse 30, or verse 29, he says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And this is one of those scriptural tremblings, I think, we talked about this morning. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to, what? Repent. Remember, repent and believe is not an invitation, it's a commandment. We have to quit treating the gospel like an invitation and treat it like a commandment. Because the commandment is repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Son who has been declared to be the Son in power. Because he hath appointed a day, verse 31, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. What righteousness? His own righteousness. Your righteousness, folks, in of itself, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. No matter how much you clean it up, your righteousness is filthy. You can clean it up. You can manicure it. You can make it look nice. But if it's your righteousness that you're standing before the Son with, you will not be able to stand. But if you are clothed and imputed with Christ's righteousness, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, as the judge, sees you as His. And He says this righteousness will judge whom? The world. Every unbeliever is going to be judged by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, by the dignity of Christ. There's not, a separate, there's not a separate pinnacle in which they'll be judged by. Like, the unbelievers are going to be judged by one aspect of God, and the believers will be judged by another aspect of God. He will judge the world. Even the unbelievers are one day going to stand before him. 
And as Philippians says, every knee will bow, every, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including the Son of God. See, I don't have to know deep theology today to believe a declaration that the Bible tells me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't, have to, I don't have to know, be secure in every single aspect of theology. I don't have to know systematic theology from beginning to end to be able to say, he declared it and I believe it. He's the Son. But I do have to warn you about your own reasoning. Your own reasoning will lead you down back alleys that you never thought you'd end up in. Your own reasoning and your own feeling will lead you if you don't have a declared point of reference of truth. And if I have the point of reference about the dignity of Christ begins with his sonship, I know I'm going to begin and I'm not going to end up in that alley somewhere. Because if you miss his sonship, his humiliation we talk about next week will mean nothing to you. Nor will his exaltation, nor will his righteousness. None of those things will matter. But notice he goes on and he says, not only will he judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath ordained. Oh, there's that scary word that Baptists want to run from. Ordination, predestination, elect. All scriptural words and it exactly means what we've learned that it means. Don't be afraid of it. I was so afraid of those terms for so many years and it wasn't until you start to the place where these are glorious truths about who God is. I would tremble at the fact if God was not in the electing business and he was not in the predestinating, I would tremble at that because all I would have to rest on is my own merits and my own feelings and I have nothing secure to grab onto. But I can grab onto sovereign grace. Those whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men. The whole world universally know unto all men who have been ordained. You have assurance today of his sonship. You have assurance that he is the judge of the world. But here's what you have assurance of, and this is so important. In that he hath raised him from the dead. I have no doubt about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are some believers and churches that are very wishy-washy on this whole idea of the resurrection. I, I can't for the life of me understand. How can you even sing about God if you have a question about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because you know what's happened? Just like Paul when he had to address the men at Athens, the philosophers, that's what's entered and infiltrated the church is philosophy. Philosophy is replaced the scripture. The Bible is so clear about these things if we will just read the scripture and stop listening to philosophers. Well, the sky might not really be blue. Because if you get into the intricacies of the universe, then there's something causing that and it's not really blue, it just looks blue. Sadly, many of your secular universities, that's the reasoning that they're being taught to think. Let's do this circular reasoning. And it's infiltrating Bible colleges too. So we better, and Christian colleges better be very careful about that. Because when we just simply have this idea of what we think we want God to be, 
But then we have this. But notice, he says, and when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. To mock the resurrection is to mock his sonship. Are you following? If, if he was, the resurrection is what declared him to be the son of God with power. You take out the resurrection, he can't be the son. And if he can't be the son, then what hope do I have? So people mocked it just like they do today. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Praise the Lord, there were people who said, you know what? Instead of just throwing it all away and mocking it, we'll listen again. I don't ask this question for an answer back, but how many times did you have to hear the gospel before you really started to understand it? You see, we expect somebody just to walk in off the street who's never even darkened the door of a church, never even seen the Bible open, and we say, well, that message was so powerful. Why did they run down that aisle and get saved? Now listen, I believe God can do anything He wants to do. And if He wants to save a soul in an instant, we know He's the, he's the one who's behind salvation. That person can come to saving faith and know it. But you understand, there are people that are going to say, you know what, I'm going to mock this sonship thing, this resurrection thing. But then there are others that will say, I'll listen again. Listen, this is a side note, but be thankful if somebody gives you a listening ear more than once. I've had conversations where I had one chance to talk about the Lord, and that was it. Now, thankfully, God saves in spite of me, and they're not dependent upon me. I'm not God's, God's gift to the church, and neither are you. They'll never get saved if they don't hear it from me. <laughs> don't discount God. The Bible declares what about his own? He'll, he'll lose none. There's not a single person going to be left behind. There's not a single one who has been ordained to eternal life who Jesus Christ is going to say, where is so-and-so? I know they were one of mine. I must have turned my back and I must have, must, I must have lost them. I'm not trying to be irreverent, folks, but there's people whose doctrine, that's what they believe. They believe God may look up one day and, and they were busy, 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 and he left me. You won't be left if you're one of his. But you're also not one of his if you refuse to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not getting into God. You're not getting to him just because you're in church this morning. This is doing absolutely nothing for you eternally, spiritually. But his sonship, they mocked. Others said, we'll hear him again. So Paul departed from among them. I love this. How be it certain men clave unto him and what? Believed. There are always those who will believe. But this picture again of Christ's sonship, we go on. The story of Jonah and the great fish. We often assume it was this whale, which is okay. You can, however you want to put this. But please understand that that whale, that great fish, was ordained by God. Uh, this was not a random big fish swimming by that said, hmm, Jonah looks good. That whale was ordained by God, the whole plan of God, even as Jonah was running from God. Again, isn't it amazing how much the, the topical preaching that's just trying to arouse a reaction out of you focuses so much on Jonah's running 
Instead of the ordaining hand of God, which prepares that great fish that swallows up Jonah, which is actually more than just three days and three nights randomly, it was a picture of Jesus Christ going into the grave for three days, three nights, and raising from the grave. Bet you didn't learn that in Sunday school. You probably saw just a giant flannel graph with a big whale swallowing Jonah because our kids are not capable of understanding these great deep truths. What a travesty. Jonah, a prophet, was ordained. The prophet Jonas, Jonah was quoted by Jesus. His, the ordeal, the providential hand of God, but the temple of Jesus Christ's body, which is in which the fullness of the Godhead dwells, right? In Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Mankind for those three days. And I want you to think about this. For three days, mankind thought, we have destroyed him. We've killed him. Those, that, that Sanhedrin, those Pharisees, who for, for all those times when Jesus just happened to get away, he didn't just happen to get away. His hour had not yet come. And when they took him, he went voluntarily to prove, to prove he was the Son of God. They said, we've killed him. Oftentimes, I have often wondered, what truly was Jonah thinking for those three days? Now, the scientists want to get into all the impossibilities of how this couldn't be, and he couldn't survive the stomach acid of the whale or the fish. Folks, quit wasting your time on stuff like that and think about what the picture and the type is. Into the belly of the earth, Jesus Christ goes. He dies. Three days, three nights. We can have a debate one uh, some other time about what happened during those three days the bible tells us just a little bit about it so be careful of how dogmatic you get about this i've seen people turn blue in the face over what happened during those three days i mean blue in the face veins popping out of their neck i would much rather look at the reality of what that three days that was a promise was a prediction Three days, his body goes into the grave, and in three days, it's raised up. But what did Jesus do before the resurrection? He appeared in our nature. He became sin for us. He took on that robe of human flesh without ever ceasing to be God. He took on the sinful nature of us in order to do what? To lay down his life. Christ came to die. Often we make the mistake of saying, I, I wish Jesus Christ would not have died. Do you realize what you're saying? Now, death in and of itself, yes, we're all, to some extent, we're frightened by it. We're frightened by the how, the when, the why. But Jesus Christ came to die. He came to provide salvation and to do what did we learn in the very first part of Hebrews? The very the very purpose of God found in verse 3 of Hebrews 1 he himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the father 
Before he sat down again at the right hand of the Father, he rose again, he was seen, he ascended. But when he was on that cross, he was actually purging our sins. He was not just making the purging of your sins possible if you chose to accept it. He was actually purging your sins. So when were your sins purged as a child of God today? On the cross. Not the moment you prayed the prayer. There's a great distinction here. Some of you are going to look at me like, what do you mean? No, my sins were purged when I accepted that. No, your sins were purged on the cross. You're giving yourself way too much credit. And so am I if I say, it was when I prayed. That's, that's when my sins were purged. No, we've already learned that our salvation was determined before the foundation of the world. So that there was nothing good or bad in you that was the, that was the purpose of why it happened. So he lays down his life. He comes in the character as a servant. A servant of the Father. To accomplish the salvation of whom? The whole world or to those the Father gave him? If you believe the Bible, John says, to all that the Father gave him. If you're in Christ today, you were given to Christ directly by the Father. Not just because you prayed a prayer one day and said, I chose Christ for myself, and you can too. Not everybody in this world can say, Jesus Christ died for me. I know it's the popular gospel call. Jesus Christ died for you. If he died for you, then his death on the cross was effectual. It didn't make it possible he actually purged your sins. What a glorious truth. A truth I preached for years. Didn't even believe it. I believe that my purging was at the moment that I prayed. Just ignored the passages that said my salvation was more the foundation of the world. But notice that Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about this over the coming weeks, He is the seed of the woman. He's referred to as the head of God's elect. Jesus Christ willingly and voluntarily identifies Himself with us. You know how careful we are to identify with people who aren't like us? You know, how, you know how careful we are not to identify to those really wicked, bad people? You realize Jesus Christ identified with the most wicked of all, depraved sinners? Yeah, that's you. That's me. I'm not so bad. I mean, people are a lot worse than me. That probably just indicates and declares how depraved you really are. Because if I can stand like a publican and the publican and the, and, and the Pharisee, and I can, as a Pharisee, say, I thank God I'm not like that guy. Listen, Jesus Christ identified with sinners. If he died for you, he identified with you, and not because you were worth it. The expression, the reason Jesus Christ died was because you were worth it, that's not Bible. <laughs> he didn't die because you were worth it. These are all declarations of who Jesus Christ is. Imagine how my theology would change if I thought Jesus Christ was doing everything he did and God does everything he does because I'm worth it. That's just what our society needs. More self-esteem. More pride. That, that's exactly, yeah, when I look back at society, I say, you know what society needs? We need more things to promote ourselves. Yeah, that's exactly what we need. This is, a, this is the most self-promoting society in all of human history. 
And we are so important and so valuable that if our voice doesn't get heard, the world just won't be the same. Jesus Christ identified with those who were not worthy to be identified with. He ate with the sinners. He spoke with the prostitutes. And it's easy for us to say, boy, those sinners and those prostitutes, I'm telling you, Jesus really did something amazing there. The fact he identified with you and with me ought to humble us. Because every day you're reminded of the reality that I'm not, I wasn't worth all this. He identified himself with them that he might raise them to life. To be dead in Christ is to have the promise of the resurrection. That's why we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. That's why we don't stand by the graveside or in the funeral home or in the church and sorrow as if we have no hope. We have a promise of the resurrection. And this is all based on His sonship. You take away His sonship, we have nothing. In their nature, He endured the curse. What was the curse of sin? Death. He had to die. What do we get out of it? We inherit a blessing. We inherit eternal life. And guess what we get to be called? This, this is mind-blowing. That through our actual union with Christ, and by the way, our union with Christ is not some mystical fairy tale. Somehow, some way, we are actually in union with Christ. This wicked, corrupt, depraved sinner over here is identified and actually in union with Christ. And we are acknowledged to be the sons of God. Jesus subjected himself to suffering and death that they, you and I, that are in him, might partake of eternal life with him. We often think about how easy it was, the one commandment that, Moses, that uh, Adam was given was just abstain from one fruit on one tree. How hard is that? Simple, right? Simple. But what was required to undo, don't miss this, what was required to undo what Adam did, all Adam had to do was not eat of that one tree, right? But what did it take to undo that one act of disobedience? Christ had to walk the road of sorrow, of shame, of grief in this world, and that still wasn't enough. Are you all following? Sorrow, grief was not enough. The wages of sin is death. So to wish that Christ didn't die would to wish that the whole purpose and plan of salvation was to be erased from human history. Jesus, we're told, did all of that willingly. He knew that his Father's commandment was for life everlasting, not only to himself, but to a countless multitude which no man can number. I've had people, I think, innocently ask, how many people do you think are going to be in heaven? And my answer is, I have no idea. But we are told it's, it's a countless multitude. And the promise is this, all that the Father gave him will be there. That's actually more assuring to me than wondering how many people are going to do enough to get there? Like people want that. They, they, I'd, rather, I'd rather determine my own destiny. <laughs> 
We already see what happens when you tell man what not to do. That's what happens. Tell a child what not to do today and see if that's not the first thing they go and do. <laughs> Welcome to childhood. And we say, boy, I tell you, kids just can't get it together. Watch adults. Parents are the worst at this. We say, this child will not do anything I say. And adults ask to do something. I'm not doing that. Or they, they do it anyway. Somehow we think that the age of 18, now suddenly, now, kid, if you just watch me, this is, this is perfect obedience to the call of God. No, we're probably the example that we're given to the child that shows, look, here's the proof like father, like son. He's doing the same sin the father does. Because he has the same depraved heart. He has the same sin nature. But let me finish this by simply saying that as the father himself had life in himself, part of the sonship is he gave to the son to have life in himself. And because Christ had life in himself, he gave him something very important. He gave him authority to execute judgment. He's given that authority because he is the son of God. If he's not the Son of God, he doesn't have the authority to execute judgment. Let me give you one passage, John 5, verses 26 and 27. And this will, this will wrap up today at least this first part of this. John 5, 26. For as the Father hath life in himself. I just quoted that and here's scriptural basis so I didn't just make it up. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Now, please make note, all that are in the graves. There are unbelievers and believers in the grave. All that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And shall come forth, they that have done good, this is not works-based salvation, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Every grave in every cemetery everywhere in the world, and even graves that there's not a grave, where someone's body was never located. Okay, that's always an interesting thing. Someone says, what happens if somebody died this way and there's no body? The grave is a picture also of all that have died. They're all going to be raised. But notice it says that one group, there's only two types of people in the world today. You are either going to be raised under the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. You are not hanging in between. You are not in a place called, your loved one is not in a place called purgatory. There's nobody praying them out of there or praying them in, whatever the case is. You are either going to be resurrected unto life or you'll be resurrected unto the damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. This is so important about sonship. Jesus says, I can't act independently. You realize the son can never act independently of the father. Jesus can't get up one day, again, I'm not being irreverent, and say, I think I'm going to go contrary to the father today. I can do nothing of my own self. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the father which has sent me.
Jesus does nothing on his own. The reason that all judgment is committed unto the Son, it's remarkable. Because that all men, we're told, should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. So if I say today, look, I'll give God the Father the credit for being God, but I just don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I'm going to say this. You're in unbelief. You're not a Christian. You're not a believer. You say, but our church talks about Jesus. We talk about the Spirit. We just don't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we don't believe He's God. You're not in the faith. You say, that's mean. That's mean-spirited preaching. That's just truth. Now, can you be in the faith if you will repent and believe? Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you will look to Christ, you will run to Christ. You'll gaze on the Christ. You'll acknowledge that He is the Son of God. You'll acknowledge that He's my only remedy for my sinful condition. I can make a promise. He says, I will, and Jesus Christ says, I will no wise cast out anybody who comes to me. Don't let the doctrine of election be your excuse to why you didn't come to Christ. Because that's not what it means. You, today, are commanded by Scripture to repent and believe the gospel. I'm not asking you to consider it, to think about it, to reason it. Repent. Believe the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Next week, we'll look at a Actually, there's another testimony. That's the second half of verse 5 that gives us another proof about Jesus Christ's sonship. Let's conclude our time this morning by singing the hymn, a familiar hymn, on page number 19, To God Be the Glory, hymn number 19.